AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for October 11th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. And happy Security Awareness Month to everybody that's out there. And uh, first of all, welcome John Markley. We have uh, John Markley online. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I guess for the uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month, I think you're going to take us through another quiz, which uh, is always a challenge and entertaining. So looking forward <laughs> to that. Good. Uh, here we have Matt Kaiser. Welcome back, Matt. Uh, glad to be here, Brian. Thanks. And we have uh, Stan Nurlov. And uh, Stan, you've been sort of in and out lately and kind of busy, yes. perhaps staying up a little bit late. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, just uh, again, this year, uh, FireEye is doing their flare-on reverse engineering challenge. So uh, this is the third year I'm going to be participating. I hope I get a chance to finish this year. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is can, it can be pretty challenging. Um, currently, I challenge three out of ten, mm -hmm. uh, and I really enjoyed the second challenge. It was some uh, malware that I've never reverse engineered before. So I'm staying up late. If you see the circles <laughs> under my eyes, it's due to that. But I'm having lots of fun. Yeah. So just so folks are aware, you know, Stan's been busy with his real job <laughs> during the regular work hours, and uh, you know, busy with the family as well. And then yes. as, after the kids go to bed at night, this kind of when you work on the flare-on challenge. So Definitely uh, appreciate you participating in that. Looking forward to you finishing with flying colors. Uh, I hope so. Now I have to. <laughs> now you have to. <laughs> the challenge is on. So, Stan, we'll just go ahead and continue with you here. And, um, it, you know, there have been a lot of uh, attacks associated with this Cozy Bear activity, or at least allegedly associated with this Cozy Bear activity. Some strange nuances that are popping up. Uh, yes, well, there's lots of different kinds of bears. Uh, fancy <laughs> bears, cozy bears, all kinds of bears out there. Um, and of course, these are terms that are um, used to describe the uh, Russian threat actors mm -hmm. or adversaries associated with maybe possibly Russian state-sponsored kind right. of activity. Uh, so many of you guys may have heard, you know, obviously, we, I think we might have even covered it here, you know, a few weeks ago, the WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, something, you know, one of their databases was hacked, mm -hmm. um, and some information about um, uh, athletes and the exceptions they have for therapeutic use of certain control substances or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, have been released about those um, uh, athletes. Now, of course, this is all like drama, like cyber drama, like from a movie. The reason mm -hmm. why is because actually I think Russia, uh, some of their athletes were um, thought to be doping and were excluded from the competing in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this WADA would be a, a juicy target for would-be Russian hackers. So, I can see why, you know, people are attributing a lot of this activity and it would make sense as well. Uh, well, what's interesting is, you know, we, I guess this has been reported uh, in the past, but uh, one of the things I found interesting is that WADA is actually, you know, kind of like blogging about what they're finding and they have uh, a post. And today in Ars Technica, I read an article, you know, last week highlighted that the incident response team from WADA found something interesting. The documents that were taken before being released were actually modified. So they found evidence of modification 
um, I guess maybe to all or some, I'm not certain, mm -hmm. uh, of the records that were released. And I think that that's very interesting. So beyond just like releasing these documents to also now you put whatever you kind of want in there to make the kind of political point you want. So it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting kind of use of like old school uh, spy tactics, I guess, and cyber as mm -hmm. well. So I guess to, to break this down a little bit, sort of an unusual amount of transparency in WADA's investigation about the incident. That's what I, you know, appreciate the most about it, actually, because mm -hmm. I think uh, it actually lets other people learn mm -hmm. not only what was the attack like and what was taken, of course, makes people feel mm -hmm. a little bit better knowing that they have the situation in control. And that's an mm -hmm. important part of it. But as well for other incident response teams out there to mm -hmm. let them know how did this attack manifest itself and, you know, let them think about strategies for how they would protect themselves. So I guess one of the things about this transparency is it doesn't appear to be backfiring at all so far. Is that right? I mean, I, I haven't uh, seen not anything that, I've, that suggests uh, that. Yeah, and I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah. And, you know, just to be practical about it, there wasn't any hiding about the fact that these documents were stolen. They were, in fact, you know, they were released to the public and uh, obviously got a lot of scrutiny. So the transparency is perhaps an opportunity to, you know, take something, you know, make right. lemonade out of lemons, and so also to speak. somewhat stick it to the attackers. I mean, if you're releasing the techniques that they use to break into WADA, those mm -hmm. techniques, in theory, are no longer going to be viable, assuming that people will implement them on their own to defend their own networks. In theory, though, and I, I think that's <laughs> a big, we can talk about that point all day. Yeah, it, well, as a practical matter, there are folks that are going to be paying attention to it. So that there is a deterrent associated with that of attempting to use the same techniques and that it is difficult to come up with whole new techniques. You can come up with new MD5 hashes, but that's a piece of cake. You can come up with new command and control points, that's a piece of cake. And in fact, that's, you, you bring up a very good point. In my opinion, that's really the level of sharing that needs to be taking place. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the public domain, but certainly uh, in a, a broader spectrum so that we're getting into more abstract aspects of attacks, the TTPs that you can use as a means. In fact, I would tend to go even further to say we should be sharing more about the techniques for detecting, you know, algorithms or, you know, processing functions. And, you know, to, if, if you can devise signatures to, to, to share the signatures because the IP addresses and domain names are so, you know, they change so quickly, MD5s change so quickly. Only, you know, for the advanced attacks, they only get used one time. And uh, yet there's an awful lot of effort around sharing these IP addresses that are stale. And so it's, uh, it becomes a wasted, wasted effort. And actually, that's a good point. You know, you saying that reminded me of my point that I wanted to make was that they're releasing kind of like how they dealt with the situation. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of teams out there, and response teams, you know, some of them have a, a very mature process for handling situations, mm -hmm. they have very mature playbooks, and some of them are just beginning on their journey of making those playbooks. And so just seeing how other people respond and the kind of procedures they take, uh, I think is helpful and educational. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can't learn these things, you know, in university. You kind of learn trial by fire and by them posting these things, I think it, it can be helpful to others. Take yeah, absolutely. Any any nuggets and what they've shared that you um, find to be? I think it was kind of a standard attack. Uh, you know, it was a phishing email. 
before and after the Olympic Games or during, sorry, before and during the Olympic Games, they knew exactly who to target mm -hmm. and they knew exactly how to target them, it seems, uh, because they were asking for specific, a specific system where they knew this information was located. Mm -hmm. And they think it might be that type of email that allowed the phishing credentials, uh, sorry, the credentials to the system to be phished mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, basically tricked somebody uh, to click the email, provide the information. And they, they went after all the people who would have had that type of access. Mm -hmm. The other thing, um, and I think this, this can happen sometimes, you know, there, there, there's different organizations involved. So WADA provides a certain part of the infrastructure and then the people running the Olympic Games have some other infrastructure. You have different groups, different responsibilities, different procedures for protecting things. I think sometimes that's where things can go wrong. So they mm -hmm. don't have to fish necessarily people in WADA, they could just fish the people who are part of the uh, Olympic Committee or something mm -hmm. like that. So I'm not sure who exactly, whose credentials were taken, uh, but they were taken. And then once the data, you know, once they had access to those credentials, they basically could go and rummage mm -hmm. this database. Uh, I think they mentioned they were in and out of there for like two and a half weeks, sometime in August and September, mm -hmm. before the documents were released, at which point, you know, they shut it down immediately and they took some certain steps mm -hmm. uh, to kind of put a Band-Aid on the activity while they investigated. Um, so, standard type of attack, but also what happened kind of lets me know that, you know, maybe they didn't necessarily get further into the network. Another nugget, uh, I just recall, is that actually afterwards, the people whose information was released, they're continuing to be fished. So now they're receiving phishing messages saying, hey, your information was taken, so-and-so needs to talk to you, or mm -hmm. you need to do such and such step, and you know, those are not official messages. So even after the original attack, you remain a target, um, and actually, you know, they, obviously the attackers can build on it. Mm -hmm. and gain further insight, uh, access. So is there reason to believe that, they are, that it's the same group that are fishing these? I don't know that there is necessarily reason to believe that because that could be anybody or right. it could be the same group. Could be capitalizing. You know, usually when there's a disaster, there's sort of a rash of, exactly. of uh, you know, phishing attacks or, or, you know, scams that are intended to just, you know, gather money for donations, that type of thing. So maybe something similar. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the things you pointed out, you said sort of a standard type of attack, attack where they were targeting specific people, they knew who to target. Uh, maybe we don't know this specifically who was targeted, but that whole notion is, I guess, in, you know, keeping in the theme of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, that is, everybody needs to be aware that they may be a target of phishing, particularly if they're a holder of credentials for a database with personal information, right? Yes. And um, I think the other aspects here is that uh, the, the fact that they were able to remain persistent for a couple of weeks, um, and, and in fact, that you can actually be fished for credentials. So two-factor authentication is yet, you know, another reinforcement for that. Even the advanced actors are, you know, basically have to resort to stealing credentials or something in order to get access to systems. So the more we can promulgate use of two-factor authentication is a better protect, protector, and then obviously keeping an eye on what's going on in the network. It may be difficult to find that activity. We don't know because we don't necessarily know the details here, but um, one thing's guaranteed, if you're not looking, you won't find it. <laughs> yes. So. All right, good. Thank you, Stan. That was a good discussion here. You had the look that you were getting ready to say something, Matt. <laughs> no, I thought it was my turn next. It's not my turn. I look at the slides and I'm like, well, it's not me. All right.
Okay, and we're going to pass it over to John Markley here. And uh, John, I think the uh, you know new security features are coming out, and even the uh, I guess the social world. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a rundown on that. Sure, sure, Brian. Yeah. So so essentially, just to kind of cover the. The, some of the you know things that people are concerned about is that when you, when you communicate with one another, you always think, is that message encrypted? Is it secure? And even you know the the interim Snapchats and Twitters and stuff, people are always concerned. Is that going to be uh, you know kept private? And Facebook has introduced a new feature with their Messenger product where they can actually create secret messages between two parties. This adds another layer of encryption that, you know, your messages are already encrypted. Facebook is very quick to point that out. Your messages are already already encrypted. But this adds another layer. So when you say they're already encrypted, they're encrypted over the network. Are they necessarily, you know, exclusive to the two parties that are communicating? And and that's where I think some people get a little concerned about because there's always a way to over the network. It's not quite as encrypted. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's ways it's not it's not uh, other than normal phone or Wi-Fi type security, if you have a man in the middle, like it's sitting at a coffee house, you could probably get into a Facebook messenger, a normal every, you know, if you're, if you're in that loop, but if you're, you know, the, the server side, you know, that part of it is encrypted. Um, okay. But, but man in the middle, you might be able to sneak a peek at a Facebook messenger, mm. uh, con, you know, communication. If you, if you know the right, you know, protocols and whatnot to, to, to get into it. So, okay. so that's, that's why they kind of went to this secret, um, it's, it's a little bit of a pain to work with. I'll be honest with you. I mean, not to be too critical, but you know, security, adding security on top of, of a function that already exists is always a little bit tricky. Mm-hmm. And what Facebook elected to do is that when you start a new message and, and is there's actually to anybody, you can't just be like, open up a message to you, Brian, and say, Oh, I'm going to make this a secret message. You have to start before you even pick the person. Mm. So you say, I'm going to, I'm going to create a message. I'm going to make it secret, and then you pick who you're going to communicate it with, and okay. and that's and that adds that little extra layer. There, there's a couple drawbacks. Of course, there always is, but there's there's a couple drawbacks. One is is that that encryption is made device to device. Mm-hmm. So if you decide, oh, I need to go look at, you know, I sent this message on my iPhone. I want to go look at it on my Android tablet or my Apple, you know, iPad tablet. You can't. Mm. Because that's not that's not going to work. It's device to device encryption, and so that's kind of the drawback. You can't send pictures. You can't do a lot of that neat little tweaks with the stickers and the new stuff that iMessage has increased. You know, added. You can't do those things mm-hmm. because those that's just extra overhead for this uh, you know additional communication channel that they didn't want to implement. Uh, you know, and try and figure out how to do that and, and add that layer of uh, additional encryption. Mm-hmm. So is that. Does that mean it's exclusively over SMS or MMS or any other somewhat limited channels? I mean, I'm wondering where it's, the it's the face it's face yeah from. it's 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 Facebook Messenger, so it's actually a Wi-Fi protocol. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's it's a TCP protocol. It's not an SMS like your normal, uh, you know, uh, MMS like a communication phone, cell phone, cellular network. Mm-hmm. And this is a this is a TCP/IP type protocol. Okay. Now I, I'm going to take a guess here. I, this is a, this is a new feature. Is that correct, John? Correct. They just added it a week or so ago. Right. So this may be one of these situations where they're kind of in the beginning of it to see if there's an interest in it and perhaps would, you know, using this as perhaps to decide whether they want to invest further in it, add additional features over time. You know, Facebook, I think, is well known or perhaps well known 
for using a very agile development process. That is, they'll introduce new features to a small test group and see if it is, uh, see if it takes and then develop upon that and uh, promulgate it much further over time. And things that don't aren't successful, they'll pull it back and either start over or abandon it entirely. So uh, I suspect that this is one of these situ situations where if it actually does take hold, they're gonna continue to, to uh, develop on it, make it easier to use and uh, address some of these issues that you just described here, John. And it, at some point it might become the default, right? Yeah, possibly. If it, uh, I mean, it, it, this is, I think what you're seeing here, it, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to read between the lines, so to speak, but uh, key management is challenging. That is, in order to keep things secret, you have to have a key management scheme that is protected between the entities that you're trying to actually keep secrets from. And in this case, it appears that they, they basically bound that to the device as a, as a mechanism so that perhaps it would help protect you against a credential theft, for example. And it, you know it's a good security strategy, but it may not be a good user friendliness strategy. And they have to see if it actually has some value in that. John, do you know if this is based on any existing end-to-end uh, -end encryption product? I, I, I don't recall looking. You know, when I did my research, I didn't see anything in there already, like saying, okay, it's a you know an RSA or an a you know nothing of that nature was ever really disclosed. So, mm -hmm. so I, I can't answer that question. It's it's but it's a good one. I just don't yeah. know the answer. So in any case, if you have uh, interest in protecting your messaging on Facebook, this is an opportunity to try something out new and see if, uh, see if it works for you. Seems counterintuitive to me. I figure anything you do on Facebook is not that well protected. <laughs> Usually you're sharing information with people. Yeah, absolutely. And you want people to know more about what's going on in your life. Well, you, you know, it, just to play devil's advocate or for, for the purpose of conversation, that may in fact be one of the reasons it's a little difficult to use, that Facebook actually makes their living out of understanding the behavior of people and then using that to help market products through their, through, through their advertising. That is their business model. If you encrypt everything and they can't see it, it's gonna be really hard to do that other than to sell you encryption products. Which right. probably <laughs> voluntary. But on the other side, we do know, we do know that Facebook has been used right. in, in situations like the Arab Spring. That and yeah. Twitter were instrumental in organizing a lot of mass protests. So some Facebook users, not all, but some do have an interest in having reliable encryption products. Yeah, absolutely. So this, it all makes sense. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, let's go to you. And, okay. you know, the, uh, this whole IoT thing has been <laughs> uh, just breaking apart. You know, we, we've been talking about this for the last couple of years on the program, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the topics here, but it's really kind of, I think, coming to a head, perhaps in a very positive way. So sure. you have a new finding here. That a new finding, not too, too surprising. And I will say to your first point that I think when the, the Mirai botnet news broke and the attack on Krebs on security broke mm -hmm. records and then there was the attack on OVH that apparently broke the, that record mm -hmm. by almost doubling the volume. Mm -hmm. I think people are really paying attention to IoT botnets now, and I think that's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the latest uh, comes out of a group called searchlab.hu in Hungary. Uh, Gergely Eberhardt, I hope I'm saying that name right, uh, released a list of 14 vulnerabilities in devices from Avtech. Now, Avtech, I think, is a... I want to say Korean company, maybe Taiwanese, I, I apologize. Uh, but they, they make uh, essentially IP cameras, DVRs, uh, mm -hmm. network video recorders, things like that. And the list of affected firmwares is considerably long. They, they make the claim at the beginning that this affects 
all Avtech devices. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the list of affected hardware, certain vulnerabilities affect all of them, certain ones haven't been fully tested, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it's significant enough that if you have an Avtech device, I would definitely recommend you take a look at what, what this is and see if your firmwares are affected. So this was apparently disclosed after a year of failing to get in touch with Avtech. They, have, they did list out the timeline and it took them about a year mm -hmm. on four different occasions. And at that, this, they decided to release the bugs at this point because these, these are pretty glaring problems, things like command injection, authentication bypass, an interesting little bit of uh, CAPTCHA bypass as well. It looks like they tried to put a CAPTCHA on the login to some sort of security, but then you add an extra flag to the request and it just completely bypasses it. <laughs> it's a little silly. Mm -hmm. um, from results in Shodan, uh, it looks like there's about 130,000 devices that are affected, or at least that are Avtech devices. There's some demo code available on GitHub, and I think we'll have the link in the notes. And then there's also a video that the creator, the definer of these bugs posted, and I, I thought it was pretty entertaining. I like watching a good exploitation video of um, security exploitation. Mm -hmm. The guy walks through most of the bugs, one after the other, with nothing but a web browser and having the correct links and shows, here's my login page, here's how I got past the login page, mm -hmm. here's your CAPTCHA, here's how I got past the CAPTCHA. And it's, yep. it's, it's simultaneously scary, but it's also exciting to see someone who works so well with this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly, uh, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's good that these things are really coming out and uh, you know it's a shame it actually has to get into the public domain to try to get it fixed but mm -hmm. I'm hoping that at least they'll get fixed is it do you know if there's been any response from the company at this point I looked on Avtech's Twitter uh, mm -hmm. no no emails have been posted by the author of this mm -hmm. this post and I figured they would have at least responded on Twitter publicly which I mm -hmm. would I would assume is the most public of their their interfaces with social media mm -hmm. I didn't see anything okay it's interesting you know this uh, this kind of goes back to I blogged I think in 2012 on the topic of you know, I, IoT devices and, you know, this. it was actually uh, uh, keying off a blog from Jim Boxmeyer, a, a, you know, former colleague of ours that had uh, talked about, you know, I was attacked by a refrigerator. That was the, you know, this is the big thing oh, at the time yeah. we were expecting refrigerators to be the big I, IoT device. Nevertheless, um, you know, some of the things that uh, I, I, I talked about are, have to do with just basic things, like you shouldn't have a default password. There should be a password that's unique to the, the device. Mm -hmm. There should be a patching process associated with devices, and there needs to be a support program around it. That is, if you find a vulnerability, you need to be able to find somebody that can do something about it. And it appears that in this particular case, they don't have all of those things. Yeah, I, I would agree. That, that may be why Avtech didn't respond, because they have no way to patch it. Uh, it may be a good possibility, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and even if they were to generate the patches, actually getting them out there maybe a challenge. In fact, that's, you know, it's kind of advocating that the patching should actually, uh, you know, one of the big, best things, in my opinion, that Microsoft did was create an automatic patching capability. If you remember before that, <laughs> I think this was what, around, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was uh, Windows 2000 or something where they came out with that feature. And it was the, it turned things around night and day relative to be able to actually get rid of botnets and be able to fix problems. So it was a really big change. I think that's really where the IoT space needs to go as well. Uh, and we've even been talked about some of the problems with connected car. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it was a simple, you know, push the patch out, corrected the problem, and then other manufacturers turned into a, an ugly recall activity. So very interesting comparisons. There are hazards in doing automatic patching 
you know, you might disable the, the device by accident, you might have some other problem, but I think those are much rarer and much safer because you definitely will find vulnerabilities in time. They definitely will need to be patched. And if you don't have an automatic process, they definitely won't get patched. It's true. The one thing I will mention is that of those 14 vulnerabilities that I listed, not one of them was a Telnet default password, which was a little bit exciting. <laughs> That is, that is, that is a little bit exciting. How, how the rest depressing of them are, 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 are terrible, <laughs> uh, but that's like, you know, at least they got that one right, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so John, let's go to you and uh, challenge us with the quiz. All right, well, well first off, in, in honor of uh, the Halloween episode, I, or getting close to Halloween, I did pick up a, a wizard hat, so I have my quiz, my quiz wizard hat on now, and uh, so I can properly give these uh, these questions and, and feel feel dressed appropriately. Okay, my only regret is all <laughs> so, I can see is a lens right now. So. All right, let us have, let us have it, John. I'll have to get a picture of you. Later. All right, so uh, so anyway, so one of these uh, these following don't belong. Uh, types of firewalls include a packet filter, b application layer. C HoneyNet or D Stateful Inspection. That's an easy one, I think. Well, go ahead and take it, Matt. Well, I think it's C. Uh, HoneyNet is not a firewall. A HoneyNet is uh, a collection of machines set up to entice someone into in, uh, exploiting them, breaking in, and then showing what you would do post exploitation to sort of learn about the attacker. Mm -hmm. So that's my vote. I'm going to go with C. Okay, so which one of these does not belong? Okay, I think I can accept that. You agree, Stan? Yep. All right. Um, I, I had a little trouble reading instructions here. Oh. So okay. I was actually going to pick all the ones that were part of an, uh, a firewall, but I think we came to the same conclusion, generally speaking. I guess I, I, I'm not personally familiar with a packet filter firewall. I guess that, I mean, it, it makes complete well, sense. I mean, if you call Berkeley packet filter and other similar firewalls, packet there filter firewalls, and yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. It's, it's, it's right. kind of old old technology, you know, block port 22, mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing. That's a packet filter. All right, very good. Uh, do you agree, John? <laughs> yes, you guys got it right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, good for you, Matt. Okay. All right. Excellent. Question two. Here, This one's a little tricky. So you gotta watch the instructions here. Yeah. So keeping it private is the title. In the, in the United States, states which are considered personally identifiable information, PII, or sometimes you'll see it as sensitive, uh, you know, uh, private or personal information, SPI. So A, social security number, B, fingerprints, C, IP address, uh, excuse me, C, gender, pardon me, D, IP address, and E, all of the above. So you can choose one or choose all of them. Or choose a group. It's let me know which which of these uh, are PII. Now, are they only PII when they're associated with the person, or are they PII at any point in time by themselves? <laughs> that's that's a good question. <laughs> personally identifiable. Yeah, so you would have to put them with a name to be personally identifiable. Otherwise, it's just a fingerprint or just social security number. If you know who it belongs to, you need the name with the item, I feel like, for it to be PII. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I, I understand where you're going with this, but I'm not sure it changes the answer. No, it doesn't change the answer. <laughs> Assume that the name is with the information. So yeah. I guess, are we talking... Like, is this somehow 
legally codified or is it just like generally accepted? I think this is a legal definition. Okay. Hmm. So my, my guess, and this is a guess, I'm going to go with A and B. I disagree to C and I definitely disagree to D. And that rules out E. And I definitely agree with you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to put all your, your um, eggs in this one basket just because I'm voting first. Yeah. Yeah. Those are right. the ones that jumped out at me. I don't know. The, the IP address and gender certainly didn't. Uh, An IP address does not identify you. No, personally. Right. Unless it's with your yeah. name or something. And then, again, it could well, change even then, tomorrow. I think well, there's been court cases where people have argued that just because their IP address was listed on, say, a list of people who were downloading a video file that was copyrighted didn't that's, necessarily that's prove. different that's different that's different okay an ip address associated with activity is communications and that is privacy uh, protected okay but it's not personally identifiable information so, it, so it's not, i think okay. it's an important distinction that is communications are privacy protected mm -hmm. But they are not personally identifiable information unless you associate it with a person. <laughs> okay, I think we agree then. I was I was yeah, saying so that I've heard of cases where people weren't they yeah. weren't able to prove the connection because of that. Yeah, and that's, so this is a, this will be a situation where it's actually a different question or a different uh, you know, but it mm -hmm. certainly has privacy implications associated with it because it does associate with that. But this is personally identifiable information, and and the context here would be is it could be used for identity theft. I see. Okay. Um, and, and I tend to agree with you. I think A and B, I, you know, I mean, one could argue perhaps gender should be included in that, but I have not personally heard that in the, uh, in the legal context. So I'm going to defer to John here and say, I think we believe it's A and B, but you're going to tell us the right answer. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a great conversation. Yeah. The, you guys got it on a strict definition perspective. You got it right. Okay. And, and the key here is the United States. The, one of the keys is the United States right. here in this. Absolutely. The, cha the challenge is always, and Stan had it, actually even had it even better, is that gender and IP address, if they're associated with a person, yes. then it becomes PII. Mm -hmm. So, but to say something about a general, okay, there's male, you're male, you know, or just male in general is not a PII type issue. But if I say, that John Markley is a man who did this. Then you start getting into that little bit of a little stretch. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you might you might have to start thinking about it because you've associated that with a person. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned United States. In Europe, IP addresses are considered, um, and, and I don't know the legal definition because I am not a lawyer and I don't pretend to be one. But the um, there there is privacy. There are privacy implications beyond what are considered in the United States associated with IP addresses. But again, the activity around those is, uh, it's still protected under Electronic, Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Okay. All right, cool. All right, let's get to the next one. I think this one's a, this one's kind of a gimme, isn't it? It, it better be, <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, since- uh, uh, Specific vulnerabilities are documented using what identifier? And I'm not gonna tell you what the acronyms stand for. You, you guys should know this. But CVE, CWE, VIN, or NVD. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm gonna have to go with A here, and um, I, it, it's common vulnerability something or other. I don't recall enumeration. I enumeration. Think. There yeah. you go, because they That's assign a, a number to it. Yes. Common yeah. vulnerability enumeration. I think I agree with you. That's a fancy word for it. And then CWE would be common weakness enumeration. Created by NIST, right? I, I think you're right. And yeah. then NVD is actually the National Vulnerability Database. 
-hmm. And then VIN, I'm assuming, is the number that uniquely identifies your automobile. That's probably where you threw that one in from. Uh, well, it's not a vulnerability <laughs> identification number, because that would make sense. <laughs> I pick A. All right. I, I think we all pick A. All right, John. All right. You, you, you guys got it. Good job. That's that, And you guys figured out the acronyms without any extra help from me, so that's perfect. <laughs> all right, good deal. All right, so let's take a look at the, uh, and thank you for that, John. That was a good quiz. Um, let's, no let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. This is for October 11th. Looking at the uh, pie chart here, we still have a lot of activity on port 23. Um, I think the good news is it's sort of tapering down a little bit, but I think uh, over the last couple of days we've seen sort of an uptick, uh, perhaps because the source code for the Mira botnet has been released, and so there perhaps are some other actors that are jumping in as the prior actors are perhaps jumping out. And uh, you know we don't know for certain that that's the case, but uh, we'll take a little closer look at that. Uh, that's followed by port 22 TCP. We see some uh, changes in activity there, followed by 3389 TCP. I think there was actually a little bit of investigation into that last week uh, that uh, if you're interested in the activity that's been taking place, uh, this week's activity was consistent, but I think John, talked, John Hogeboom talked about that last week. Followed by port 80, 445, 123 UDP, 1433 TCP, that's um, Microsoft SQL data, database. And by the way, 123 UDP is network time protocol. And then we have uh, 53 UDP DNS and then uh, 443 TCP. So that's kind of paired up, paired up with uh, 80 TCP being uh, web activity. So 123 UDP and 53 UDP are generally uh, scanners out looking for uh, devices that can be used for reflection attacks, and we still see that sort of activity pretty regularly. That is, the reflection attacks as well as the scanning looking for those devices. Uh, looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, again, a very significant proportion of this port 23 activity uh, that remains at the top, followed by 6881 UDP. We're going to take a little closer look at that one. There was this kind of a strange spike in activity there. Uh, 6881 is generally associated with BitTorrent, and uh, I did, in fact, see that this activity was generally consistent with BitTorrent activity, a lot of consumers participating in that activity. I don't have an explanation for the spike. I guess the, uh, you know, occasionally these uh, networks pop up. Perhaps it was a you know, did a great, great movie come out recently, a pirated version of it, perhaps, or something along those lines? There are new episodes of Westworld. Yeah, that that's a big HBO show. And sometimes you see a big hit when a new season comes out. Yeah, so that's a possibility. I am, you know, really purely speculation on our part. Anyway, followed by 445 TCP, still have a lot of the config or stuff out there. 80 TCP, I generally don't uh, talk too much about the ICMP ports because they are either generally backscatter associated with denial service attacks, uh, but the eight ICMP activity, that is ping requests, tend to be you know basically just probing the internet and uh, looking for devices that will answer, and then perhaps they'll do a port scan after that. And then uh, we have 22 TCP showing up on that uh, on that graph as well in the top 10. Um, most of those have been you know fairly stable, but 6881 being the sort of the big jump there. So anyway, looking at uh, port 23 TCP, that's Telnet. We're looking at the last 180 days, and uh, basically around the peak point here is where we saw the activity basically come out in the public light about you know this huge botnet. Uh, we had counted it as high as 1.8 million devices in a single day, and uh, that's basically counting the IP addresses 
uh, that we observed performing scanning activity in a single day. So it was at least that big and perhaps uh, bigger because we may have missed some as well as there uh, may have been other parts of the botnet that weren't scanning. You know, maybe he was busy uh, doing denial service attacks well, or just sitting out the same botnet necessarily. Uh, that's true. It's not necessarily the same botnet, but they were uh, generally the same set of activities. True. Right. That's absolutely true. So when is the date so, that it started going down there? Uh, it started going down just right around, uh, I guess this looks like about September 20th. That's interesting. Yeah. Because that's when the big Krebs attack happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's when right a lot of people started uh, sh uh, apparently mm -hmm. shutting it down. And when the Mirai source code was released, they mentioned, the operator mentioned, that he's seen a drop in the number of uh, affected yeah. devices. Yeah, so at this point, I think for yesterday, we saw on the order about 750,000 unique sources, whereas as I mentioned earlier, we peaked out at about 100, uh, excuse me, 1.8 million in a single day. But we do see a little bit just in the last day here, an uptick here, that doesn't happen by accident. So the devices have been told to go out and start scanning again and uh, it may be a new botnet that's beginning to build. And, and all, all things being equal here, there have been periods where activity has dropped. Obviously, this is not a very stable graph. And so uh, you know, we don't really know whether that actor has really gotten out or has just created the appearance of getting out. You know, it's, the releasing the code may have been just a tactic to hide in the noise, for example. Absolutely. Uh, looking at scan probes on port 22 TCP, there haven't been really any notable changes in the number of probes, but looking at the bottom graph, we can see that there have been some notable changes in the number of sources doing that probing activity. So that's uh, also a good indicator of botnet type of activity. I'm not sure if perhaps the uh, Avtech had some port 22 vulnerabilities or some... All the ones that I saw were all web related. All web related? Okay, so uh, perhaps this isn't related and for some reason I. I got the impression it might have been. Nevertheless, uh, there is some activity there. We have seen other cases where, you know, devices uh, vulnerabilities have created renewed interest in SSH. Just to put it into perspective here, we're counting single-digit thousands of devices doing this relative to the hundreds of thousands that we were looking at on port 23. So the scales here are at least two orders of magnitude different. And then looking at scan probes on port 6881 UDP. Now, this is generally, this port is associated with BitTorrent, which is a P2P protocol, point-to-point -point protocol. And it shows up as scanning activity as a, you know, one of the clients goes out looking for other peers that it can communicate with and perhaps get files from, that sort of thing. Uh, looking at the last 180 days of activity here, you can see that there have been uh, you know, and actually, I, I didn't show off to the left, but you can see that there is a sort of a gap in activity. Well, that's actually sort of a start of a BitTorrent network, perhaps. We don't know what they're sharing on that on, on that network, but it's certainly there. A lot of consumers participating in that. And then we saw a, a, a real peak in activity over the last couple of days that mm. uh, has sort of since died off. A spike like that is a little bit of a strange situation. That's, that is strange. And yes. You know, one thing I was thinking about is to go along with the release of a new television show like that, there are companies that do enforcement oh, to absolutely. try and take yes. down this pirated material. Yeah. Now, if any one of them decided they wanted to map out all the available BitTorrent bots or BitTorrent network participants, mm -hmm. that sort of scanning might show up like this. 
Uh, possibly. It's a, it, I mean, they would have to do something because this is not only just showing an increase in the number, in the amount of activity itself, but also an increase in the number of participants in that activity. True. So, uh, a little bit strange on both accounts. I, I, I'm reluctant to speculate any further, but that's uh, it's certainly one of the uh, things. And just to take a, a look at how this is distributed geographically, uh, there's some definite, you know, biases associated with this. Not very much in Asia. You know, sometimes we've seen some uh, BitTorrent networks that appear to be uh, distributing Asia-specific content, and uh, the geographic distribution looked a little different. This one's very heavily in the United States, and it looks like uh, some uh, some heavy activity in Spain as well. So there may be some relationship. Uh, also, looks like Cuba's pretty. Uh, heavily participating in this. Yeah. That doesn't happen by accident. There's, some, there's something behind that. Nevertheless, I wouldn't consider it to be malicious in, a, in behavior, but if you see uh, this type of activity on your network, you, make, you might want to take a little closer look. Generally, these peer-to-peer -peer networks aren't um, totally upfront. Put it that way. And then the last item here, scan sources on port 1433 TCP. This is Microsoft SQL database. This is not a new change here. Basically, this is activity that had popped up. We're looking at the, uh, again, the number of sources that are doing the scanning activity, and it jumped from around 200, but this is way back at near the end of April of uh, 2016, jumped up to about 1.8 million or 1. Point, uh, I guess 1.6 million or so on, uh, on average, and has continued at that level since then. So there are definitely, there are a number of uh, devices associated with the botnet that are continuing to do that probing activity, most likely trying to do, um, you know, password guessing attacks against Microsoft SQL databases uh, and, you know, seeking out uh, data perhaps that could be leaked and possibly even documents modified before leaking them. You never know. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech channel. It's on YouTube, as well as in a podcast form on uh, iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. I'd like to thank you, Matt Kaiser, for joining us today. Thank you, Stan Nurlov. Gotta get your name straight. I don't know why I get you mixed up, but that I never, I, it always happens. Anyway, uh, I do this for my daughters as well, so consider it a, <laughs> oh, nice. an act of love. And uh, <laughs> I haven't called my daughter Stan. <laughs> but I get them mixed up. Never. All right, and then thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, keep your network safe. views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.